So this week for the this week for the Field family has been a momentous week. So this week uh, we celebrated the engagement of Hattie, our daughter, to uh, Dave Graham. So we are celebrating a wonderful engagement, which. If you um, have been tracking, which you don't need to, but just so you know, um, we are going to have had three weddings in 366 days, which is fantastic for the expansion of our family and even better for the diminishing of my bank account. But as as I think about that and I look at all three couples that are now the next generation for us, and I look at where they're at in this stage of life, and it's like everything seems ahead of them. They've, you know, they've, they've qualified, they've, they've got, some of them have got jobs, some of them are training still. Uh, they're, they're at that stage of life where it, like nothing is impossible. And they're also at that stage of life where some of the big challenges of life haven't quite hit yet. And I look between their age where they are and the stage where we are. And I recognize that there are going to be challenges that they'll walk through that we've gone through. There'll be financial challenges. There'll be health challenges. There might be relationship challenges. There'll be challenges with the inner world, with sin and realizing that you're not who you maybe thought you were. There's all of these challenges that come about life, and life gets tough. And many of us are in that sort of stage and we we look at it and we may be at the stage again where we're at where I look at the generation above and I see what's happening with my parents and I I look at the challenges that there are at that end of life. And you realize that life is not always smooth sailing. You realize that life often throws curveballs at us. You realize that life sometimes gets tough. And the question that we're asking ourselves today in this message is, why should I trust Jesus? with my life. And specifically, a couple of questions in that, because as I go on, I realize that um, there is a lot more struggle with sin than what I would care to admit to most people. And, and I look at it and I think, well, why would I trust Jesus to step into my life if I'm struggling with sin? But I also ask the question, why would I trust Jesus to step into my life while I'm struggling in life? and what's going on with the things that happen. And, and we're going to look this morning in Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to find out that the reason I can trust Jesus is because he deals gently with us. And secondly, because he's paved the way toward obedience. He's shown us how to obey. And we'll learn today that Jesus is the one and only high priest and that we can, in fact, trust him. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 says this, For every high priest that is taken from among men, is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was." In this passage which begins to tell us about Jesus Christ, the king and the priest, it starts by describing an earthly priest, a person just like you and I, who fulfills a certain role. And the main function of the priest was to to represent humanity in matters relating to God, specifically to offer gifts and sacrifices 
for sin, for the brokenness that there is in relationship between God and man. And to do this, they were to deal gently with those who were both ignorant and going astray. And the ignorant person, according to the text here, is someone who is unaware or is unsaved. And so the priest would come along to someone who didn't even know who God was or what the righteous requirements of God's way were. Someone who was not a follower of Jesus and would say, I want to deal gently with you. You know, it comes you are. And then the person who is going astray, the wandering, the unsanctified, the person who, who might know better, but is not doing what it is that God calls them to do. And the priest was told to deal gently. And that means two things. It means forbearance and magnanimity. That's a great word, isn't it? The other word, magnanimity. Right? When you read it and you look at it, and then you try and describe it, awesome. Forbearance is this idea of tolerance under provocation. There was a great game that uh, Tom, our son, used to play with Hattie, our, our youngest daughter. And it was when she was about three. You know that age when there just seems to be buttons you can press in people's emotions to wind them up. So, so Tom would play in the car um, this, this game, which he lovingly called the looking game, which was very simple, really. They'll be driving along in the back seat of the car, three kids, and Tom would just look at the corner of his eye at Hattie, and as soon as she turned around to look at him, he'd look the other way. And I mean, yeah, you look at that, well, that's stupid. So he'd do it, and probably after about the third or fourth time, she'd start to get upset because, well, why aren't you looking away from me? And all the things in the three-year-old mind would start to come up. And in the end, after four or five minutes of this carrying on, um, there would be this wail from the back seat, he's looking at me! I wonder if you've been provoked. I wonder if there are things which provoke you. You know, we think about the, the priests here who are representing people before God. What would provoke them would be sin. What would provoke us would be sin, no matter how heinous the sin, no matter how intolerable the thought of it, no matter what provoking towards judgment or disgust. They would deal gently with the person. Yeah, that is that is an expression of the heart of God. It does not matter how heinous your sin. It does not matter how terrible it might be. It does not matter what you have done. God is not provoked towards anger. He deals gently with us. And magnanimity is the idea of generosity and kindness towards the enemy. In other words, it didn't matter how much the sin of the person created enmity or brokenness in relationship, the priest would always be generous with kindness. And the idea behind that is think of the worst possible offense that you possibly can towards you or towards someone else. And you then look at the person who is the perpetrator of that offense. The dealing gently says, I will be generous with my affection towards you. No matter what you have done, no matter what has happened, I will choose to be generous towards you. I will deal gently. This word is so much more than just there, there, tap on the back. There is no anger. Also, there is no indifference. That's the opposite to anger, really. Anger says, I'm so mad, I want to get even. Indifference says, whatever. There's no anger. There's no indifference. There's no sentimentality. 
This was power under control. Because sin and death are the real enemy. They are the spiritual sickness that destroy our relationship with God. And we, as his created people, are sought out for him for restitution. You know, from the first moment of brokenness in the Garden of Eden, where the intrusion of sin into the world by the choice of humanity resulted in hostility and pain and dysfunction and death, God dealt gently. When Adam and Eve first sinned, and they moved in that moment from a place of innocent joy to a place where all of a sudden there was mutual blame and there was uh, shame and there was anger and there was a brokenness in relationship with God. There was a brokenness in relationship with each other. There was a brokenness in relationship with creation. In that moment when all of that was taking place, God dealt gently. Do you realize the first words he said after they sinned was, where are you? Wow. Where are you? And he sought out humanity, and he continues to seek out humanity and covering their shame through the presentation of a sacrifice. Well, these human priests, the descendants of Aaron, they did this every year on the Day of Atonement. They presented a sacrifice to remind the people that God deals gently with his people, and he deals with their sin And they start with their own. In Leviticus 16, 6, it says, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. And that's before he presents an offering for everybody else. You see, the priest had to be aware of his own weakness. But importantly, he had to deal with his own sin before he could help others. And that's interesting because in our day and age, If someone has dealt with their sin and they're walking in holiness and purity, sometimes you hear the sort of response of, well, you can't relate to me. Here is me in my sin and I'm I'm struggling and I'm falling and I'm failing and I'm not living the way I should. Someone who is walking with God, how can they relate to me? And it's as if we would think that one sinner would have compassion for another sinner. Yet that's not actually the case. See, sin makes a person selfish, not selfless. Sin can blind us to the hurts of others and can make us hard and judgmental instead of sympathetic. We see that with King David, who uh, a king who was a man after God's own heart, but he sinned. He, he committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba, and he murdered her husband. And, and then all this was going on, and Nathan uh, came alongside the king, and he said, King, I need to tell you a story. I want to tell you about a man who had, like, hundreds of sheep. And one day he wanted to present a sacrifice, and so he went to a person who had one sheep, and he stole that sheep, and he killed it, and he presented it as an offering. And and David, blinded by his own sin, couldn't see through the reality. And he says this in 2 Samuel 12. He said, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And in that moment... He proved the fact that the sinner continues to sin. I wonder if I look in my heart and you look in your heart and if you see judgment toward others who are struggling in sin. 
as possibly telling you more about the state of your own heart than theirs. If you deal gently, you recognize the grace of God, the the wonderful mercy of God. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. It's the spiritually minded person with a clean heart who sympathizes with a sinner and helps them. Because we're sinful, we often have a hard time helping sinners. But here it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, if someone is caught up in sin, you who are spiritual. Now what that means is this. You who are walking, surrendered to Jesus. You who are walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You who know what it is to live a life of saying yes to him. You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Deal gently. Watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. You know, the office of the priest is so important that no one has the right to take the honor upon themselves. Only God possesses the prerogative of priestly appointment. In fact, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, any time a person tried to assume the role themselves, it always ended badly. For example, Saul, when he was uh, out fighting the battles and he got to the end, he got a little bit impatient. He said, ah, I want to go and I want to offer the sacrifices and offerings myself. And as he did that, no sooner had he done it than Samuel uh, went and saw him and he said, what have you done? You've been foolish. You haven't kept God's commands And because you have done this, you will lose your kingdom. Saul lost his kingship by assuming he could be a priest. Isaiah was another king, and it said he was very powerful, and he got proud and arrogant. And in his pride and arrogance, he said, well, I can go and offer these sacrifices to God. And so he went and did that, and he went in the temple, and he'd hardly got it started, and he looked at his hands, and he was leprous, and he spent the rest of his life in exile as a leper. He lost his health. Korah, he was around the time of Moses, and uh, he got a little frustrated, and he thought, well, God, you know, God why, are you, why are you using this man called Moses to lead, and why are you using the tribe of Aaron to, to be the priest? I reckon I could have a pretty good go at this. I'm going to self-appoint myself a priest, which is what he did, and he lost his life. Point? To lead people as a king was one thing that carried tremendous responsibility and accountability. But to represent people before God and to offer sacrifices for their sins was an entirely different level. And God would only accept those he appointed to this calling. Same with Jesus. And we turn the corner, verse 5 of Hebrews 5. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ himself did not appoint himself. But it says here that there is this incredible theological position that we need to understand. And it goes like this. There was a Jewish expectation amongst some of the Jews that there must have been a distinction between the Messiah of Israel, the coming king, and the, and the priest of Israel, the Messiah of Aaron, the coming priest. 
They knew that there was these prophecies about a coming king and a coming priest, but history had taught them up to this point that no king could be a priest and no priest could be a king. Yet there was also the scripture, for example, Psalm 110, which told them to look forward to a coming priest king. And in Psalm 110, it says this, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your, your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. And there is the statement about the coming king. And then in the same breath, it says the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. King, priest, priest, king. How does this work? Is it two? Is it one? What's going on? We need to understand a little bit about Melchizedek, but I'm just going to drop the pebble in the pond on this one because chapters um, 6 and 7 and 8, like they just get into Melchizedek. and it'll, You'll have Melchizedek coming out of your ears when we get to that passage. We meet Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. Abraham was, uh, had been in a battle and he defeated some kings and, um, and, he, and he went and he went to the Shavar Valley, that's the king's valley. And when he was there, he met Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is described as the king of Salem, which was Jerusalem. And he brought out bread and wine. And he is not only the king of Jerusalem, was also a priest to God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, and he said, Abraham is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Well, this was the very first priest in history. This was way before the Aaronic priesthood. And he was the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness. And he brought to Abraham bread and wine. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had. Sounds suspiciously like worship to me. And when King David, many, many years later, conquered Jerusalem, he became, and and that lineage, he became the successor to the Melchizedek kingship. And so through David's lineage, the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, he comes, the line of the kings, and he also comes in the line of the order of Melchizedek. It is a new priesthood. It is a holy priesthood. It is a royal priesthood. It is a kingly priesthood. Jesus Christ is our priest and he is our king. And as our high priest, we can come to him because he is perfect. And because he is perfect, he is able to deal gently with us, to meet our real need in our sin. He has conquered everything that steals, that robs, and that destroys life, and he has come to give us life to the full. Can you trust Jesus if you're struggling with sin? The answer is absolutely yes. He's paid for it all. He deals gently with us. And he knows what we need to live life to the full. Have you obeyed him if you're struggling in sin? Have you obeyed him and come to him? Or are you running from him? Is he standing beside the figurative bush that you're hiding behind, just like Adam and Eve saying, where are you? For you today, maybe it's a 
choice to actually step out from behind what you're hiding behind. So here I am. And allow him to deal gently with you. So I can come to him in my sin. How about my struggle? He carries on in verse 7, during his earthly life, this is the life of Jesus, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. Now those words sound almost sentimental, don't they? You know, loud cries and tears. Uh, and you go back into the, to the original of that, there is not too many other words that plumb to the depth of emotion that those words carry. Ever had one of those moments where you feel like you've put a whole lot into something? Maybe it's a Maybe it's a meal. Maybe you've spent the whole day slaving over a, over an oven and a barbecue. And maybe you've 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 invested a lot in this meal. And maybe you've got people around, and it's, you've spent time setting up the home, and you've you've laid it out. And it, it's it's cost you time, and it's cost you money. And you do it because you want to, because you you love the people that are there, and they walk in, and it's like they take it for granted, and they sort of they arrive late, and they eat quickly, and then they say thanks for that, and run out the door. It's like you go, man, I feel like I've been taken for granted. It's like with this little sentence here, it's almost like as if you were the Holy Spirit is saying, don't take what Jesus did for granted. Don't take what he went through for granted. When he was on earth, when he was staring the cross down, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was likely that in this moment, which is what the Holy Spirit's referencing back to, that he was presenting his requests to God with loud cries and with tears to the point where almost all of eternity held its breath to say, can he get through this? And he cried out to the one who was able to save him from death. That word death literally means natural death or violent death. And the reason why Jesus was crying out with loud tears was not that he was afraid of death, he knew he could conquer it. It was the type of death that he was about to die. See, to bear sin means to die. And in that moment, the eternal divine fellowship would bear the price of sin. There would be that forsakenness that Jesus would go through. There would be the scapegoat where he would be the scapegoat of the Old Testament, the one who bears the sin of the world and is sent out into the wilderness. This cup that was before him, the cup which was the divine judgment of God on the sin of all humanity, was about to be drunk in full by Jesus Christ, the priest and the king. And he kneels before the Father and he says, Father, if there is any other way. but not my will, but yours be done. And he was heard. 
it tells us. He was heard. Why was he heard? Was he heard because he got angry with God? Was he heard because of the injustice and he just felt a rent would be a good thing for God to have at the moment? Was he heard because it was unfair? Was he heard because it wasn't what he expected? Was he heard because it wasn't what he signed up for? Was it heard? Was he heard because he shouted loud enough? He was heard because of his reverence. It's interesting. When you read the Gethsemane accounts, he calls out to the Father, Abba, Father. But unlike other passages where he cries the Father and he often hears the Father answer, you don't actually have recorded an answer of the Father in that moment. And it's almost as though the, the gospel writers are saying, can you get the foreboding feeling of distance in that moment? But in one of the gospels it says, but God sent an angel to strengthen him. And it was like, this is the way it is. You know we've got to go this way. His prayer was answered. Not by sparing him from physical death, but by giving him the joyful expectation and acceptance of what he would accomplish through his death. He learned obedience by what he suffered. He knows what it is to obey. He knows what it is to come to this moment. It's not like Jesus you know, wasn't obedient and then became obedient. He didn't learn that type of obedience. Rather, he is the, the part of the triune God, as the Son of God. There was no such thing as needing to obey because he is God. But in his humanity, he came and he all of, and now he says, and now I know what it is to willingly submit my will to God and absolutely everything. He learned obedience. And he's paved the way to obedience. He's shown us what that is, which is to do this. And every moment where you say, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if this is right, is to say, God, I trust you. You've got this. No matter what comes my way, you've got this. To submit our lives, our plans, to the glory of God, to do what it takes. And he did what it took to be the perfect sacrifice, our priest and our king. And because of that, he is the source of our eternal salvation. Some of us, we want God to take things away, don't we? Some of us want to change things. You know, as I was pondering this, I was reflecting on a question which God has asked me a number of times. And when, when things are not as I want them to be, whether it is within family, whether it is within health, 
whatever it might be in those moments where you're, you're going along and you're, you're, you feel like your heart is exploding and your mind is racing and you're, you're wishing you could snap your fingers and change things. You're wishing that you could make it different to what it currently is. And you begin to have all of these reasons as to why it would be much better if it was different. And in those moments, I find this very profound question stops me in my tracks. And it's one that I've heard the Holy Spirit whisper into my heart on a number of occasions, and it always stops me, and it always changes me more than it changes the circumstance. And the question is this, where God says to me, if nothing changes, will you still trust me? If nothing changes, will you still trust me? You see, these are our Gethsemane moments where we reverently come to Jesus, not yelling at him, not telling him how unfair it is, not being angry at him, but we reverently come to him and say, Abba, Father, if there is another way, but if not, I trust you. And be strengthened by him. And for all who obey him, he saves us. And to obey him is to trust him. And to trust him is to obey him. So this morning, I wonder where you're at. I wonder if you've trusted him with your life. I wonder if you've said yes to Jesus Christ. I wonder if you know him as your own Savior and Lord. In a minute, I'm going to lend you some words that you could say. If you might, if you might say this morning, I, I want to know this Jesus. I want to have a relationship with him. I'm going to lend you some words to pray. For others of us, I wonder if we are continuing to obey him. I wonder if in every part of our life, we say yes. I wonder if we're knowing the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life, drawing us closer and closer to Jesus Christ. I wonder if in the tough times, we trust him entirely. Would you stand with me? Father, in this moment, Would you, Holy Spirit, reveal to us through your word the glory of who Jesus is, our priest and our king, the one who is utterly trustworthy, the one who has paved the way to obedience, the one who deals gently with us. And Father, I pray for any here this morning who are struggling with coming to you because of sin. Lord, might this morning there be a welcome home moment. Father, I pray for those who might be struggling with life, where there are things going on which just seem beyond what we can bear. Father, might they trust you with their life. Father, I pray now for anyone in this room who does not yet know you. Father, I pray you would reveal your love, your acceptance, your desire 
to have relationship with the people in this room. Father, to be called out by you, to be sought out by you. God, would you bring them home? You know, if this morning you want to surrender your life to Christ, maybe for the first time, maybe just as an act of saying, here I am, Lord. You may want to borrow these words. Lord Jesus, I thank you. You love me. I thank you. You died in my place. You bore the righteous punishment for my sin. Jesus, I declare I trust you. I turn from living the way I've lived, and I turn to follow you. I surrender my life to you and welcome your forgiveness, your acceptance, and your life. Lord, I choose in this moment to follow you. I thank you for filling me with your spirit and granting me life and peace forevermore. I ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to worship. We're going to proclaim the glory of Jesus. As we do this and as we as we revel in who he is, allow the truth of what he's done to bring freedom into our lives. Let's worship together.